My name is Lauren Shirley, and I'm the communications director here. So I get to use my words a lot, but not usually from up here. So anyway, I'm, I'm super excited about having the chance to speak with you all this morning. Um, and what we're talking about, God's story, is something that has a lot of meaning for me personally. Um, and so I kind of begged Doug for the chance to get a talk, and he was gracious enough to allow it. Um, so for me, I grew up in the church. I know all the Bible stories. My mother is a pastor. I can put them all on a timeline for you. But it really wasn't until I was about 18 that I began to get the idea of one big story of Scripture. I knew all the little bits and pieces, but putting it all together really made a big difference for me and how I understood God and how I understood the Scriptures and how I understood my part in God's story. Um, and so for me, it was almost like a, where's this been all my life? Why hasn't this been here? So it's kind of the one string on my guitar now. Um, and so when I got a chance to share about this, I was super excited. So talking about stories, stories matter because God's story matters to us. And stories are how we live our lives and how we interact with people and it, it makes up everything. Um, it, it helps us understand our context and our values and, and everything about it. So understanding God's story is really important. So if you haven't heard the past few sermons uh, since we've been doing this in January, I encourage you, go back and listen to them. Because getting this framework, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, these four words is not the best description if you're trying to summarize the Bible equally. But if you're trying to get a framework for what God's story is, um, it's a really helpful thing to be able to put these kind of in that context. So um, when we're talking about stories, just to illustrate why stories matter, have you ever run into another Texan when you're out of state and there's kind of this instant connection? Or have you ever watched that happen? There's something between Texans because of our shared stories that doesn't happen from like people from Idaho. You know, there's Remember the Alamo and there's Texas football and there's Whataburger and there's all these stories <laughs> that draw us together and give us a shared culture, give us a shared idea of what's important, even if you're from completely different backgrounds, different towns, never met before, Texans, you know, we can kind of unite around our shared culture and stories. And so it's the same way for the people of God is we have this shared story and it draws us together and the story gives us context for our lives. The story uh, shows us everything that's happened. It tells us why the world is the way it is. It reminds us why life can be so incredibly good because God created everything good. But it also tells us there's a thief that wants to kill, steal, and destroy and there's this conflict we wrestle with in our lives. And so the story gives us context for why life can be so complicated. Um, but we also see that God's working redemption, and that's part of the story that gives us purpose. We get to work with God, and as he redeems our lives from the conflict in our lives, we get to work with him um, to bring his mission, to bring his story to everyone in the world. So it gives us something bigger than ourselves to live for. And it also gives us hope. God's story gives us hope, because we see how it's going to end. We don't know exactly how it's all going to happen. Um, but we know in the end, Jesus will return. He will make the whole world right again. He will set everything that's wrong. He will turn it upside down and make it right. And so that's what we're talking about today is the end of the story, the restoration of all things. Um, so we're going to jump in and talk about this. Um, and I may go a little different direction than you're expecting. Um, so hang with me. But my guess is, as we're talking about these four words, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, Restoration is probably the most fuzzy in your mind. The other three, we know really well what they are. Um, but restoration is a little bit fuzzy because, frankly, the church in the past 200 years in the Western world hasn't done a great job 
of talking about this. And it hasn't done a great job of pointing us to our ultimate hope in Scripture. And we've kind of got sidetracked with some other things that really just isn't as helpful. Um, so we're going to talk about what restoration is not, and then we're going to talk about what Scripture says, and then what does it actually mean for our lives. So starting with what it's not. Restoration is not about going to heaven when you die. Salvation is not about going to heaven when you die. And we hear that a lot, and that's kind of become the buzzword in the Western church. But the fact is, the New Testament just doesn't talk about salvation in those terms. It doesn't talk about going to heaven when you die. Now, stay with me. I do believe that when we die, we're with Jesus. And I believe that Paul says that's better, you know, and all of that. But the heaven, is, as we talk about it, is not the end of the story. There's a bigger story. So what we want to do today is kind of take what you think about heaven, and we're going to blow it up and put it in this bigger context and see that there's really a greater hope than just what we talk about when we talk about heaven. So, um, hope I haven't, you know, killed any sacred cows yet, but sorry. Um, that's what we're going to do. So, often we talk about heaven as an escape. It's somewhere we're going to go to get away from this evil world. It's almost a Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty, get me out of here. It's all going to burn up. i just got to escape. Um, and that's not what scripture talks about. That's not what Jesus' ministry was about. He came to redeem the world to work and be one of us, to be human, to show that this world has value. And that's our calling too. So if the world has value, then it's not something that we need to escape from. It's something that needs to be redeemed and restored. Um, so that's what we're going to look at is it's not about trying to get out of here, but it's about heaven coming to earth, the kingdom of God being on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is in a physical space as much as it is God's rule and reign over all creation. And so we want to see that realized here and now as much as it can. And ultimately, when all things are restored and the heavens and earth are made new, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at that bigger picture. So N.T. Wright is one of the most respected biblical scholars alive today. And he talks about how, yes, heaven is life after death. But the Bible really isn't concerned a whole lot about immediately life after death. The Bible is really concerned about life after life after death. So that's what we're talking about, this kind of two-part restoration. And since that's where we don't get a whole lot of our focus, that's where I'm going to zero in on today. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, if you ever plan a vacation and your kids are like, we're going to Bucky's, And you're like, well, yeah, that's a 20-minute part of the beach vacation we've planned for months. It's a part of it, but it's not the point. Um, that's kind of how, in the biblical framework, we think about heaven. We're like, it's heaven! And it's like, well, yes, but it's, it's bigger than that. Um, and so we sometimes miss that part of it. So that's what we're going to look at. Because um, often we let pop culture kind of influence our ideas of what heaven is anyway. Going back to the Middle Ages and Dante's Inferno and Paradiso and all these things, we kind of let pop culture say, well, that's what it's going to be like, and that forms our mental images of what heaven is, and that creeps into the church way more than it should. You know, I, for me, I remember first thinking about heaven in terms of Looney Tunes characters with Wiley Coyote trying to blow up the Roadrunner, and the Roadrunner blows up him, and then he's on a cloud on a harp, you know, playing something very dejectedly. Um, and then, but that didn't contradict with some of the things I was hearing at church and flannel crafts and things like that. So... Um, we allow pop culture to influence us here way more than we should, you know. But if some of our ideas are about clouds and harps and singing for 10,000 years, you don't want to hear me sing for 10,000 years. That's a bad idea. That's not a good time for anybody. 
Um, so if that's what our hope is, then I'm kind of with the far side guy, and maybe we need to try to, you know, bring a magazine and, and sneak something in so that, um, you know, there's something to do other than just sit on clouds and, and harps. Um, so while we're on the, the topic of what heaven isn't, um, we don't become angels, we don't become ghosts, um, we're humans. God created us humans, flesh, and bone, and spirit to bear his image, and that continues for all eternity. Right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he has a resurrected body, but he is human, and he will continue to be human forever, and we will continue to be human forever, and the calling God has given us to bear his image and to steward the earth continues even into the new heavens and the new earth. So that's kind of the context as we're starting, um, where I'm coming from, where we're going to go. We're going to look at a lot of scripture. If you don't believe me, that's fine. Um, I have some really smart guys who can back me up. So here's some books. If you want to do some research, this is a topic that takes a lot of time. But N.T. Wright's Prized by Hope, this is the textbook. It'll probably take you a while to get through it. So it's kind of d deep and dense, but it's really worth your time, I promise. Um, John Eldridge, All Things New, is a little bit more accessible a little bit more of a quick read, but both of those are really helpful. Um, if you're more of a stories person, it helps you to kind of see stories fleshed out. C.S. Lewis has two really great books, uh, The Great Divorce, about heaven and hell, and The Last Battle, which is the last of the Narnia series. Both talk about the new creation in ways that if you haven't thought of it in this context before, seeing the stories will really kind of make a lot of sense. Um, so, that being said, there are other people that, I'm not just making this up, um, let's look at what scripture says. So a few minutes ago, Cindy read from uh, Isaiah. And Isaiah has this language of new creation and heavens and, and the earth being restored physically all over the place. Um, and it's in other places in the Old Testament too, but Isaiah is really where you see this theology really come to life. And so as we think about that passage, you might have been reminded of another passage we often read around Advent, Isaiah 11, where the, the wolf and the lamb will lie together and the little child will lead them and he will put... Babies put, play with snakes and not be harmed. Um, so there's totally a change of nature. It's not just things get a little better or we tame the lions and we can, we can play with them. It's a different nature. They're no longer carnivores. Snakes are no longer poisonous. Um, it's a totally different world we're talking about. And it's a very physical world. It's a returning to what Eden was, but even better um, is the imagery we're pulling out. And so Isaiah 25 also talks about this. And again, it's a kind of a different take. Um, but still a very physical, new Eden sort of idea. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, a best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So when we look at this, you know, I don't think this is poetry. I think this is talking about actual, real food and wine and houses and animals. Um, this isn't about floating on clouds. This is not some, you know, ephemeral, out there, up there sort of thing. It's a, it's a new creation. It's a physical earth. So when we look at it, restoration is physical. So that's great, Old Testament. What about Jesus? What about the New Testament? Is there something different there? Um, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, this is Jesus kind of establishing what's the kingdom of God like? What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? 
Um, and so we see in the Beatitudes, he promises the meek will inherit the earth. If we're really just trying to escape to heaven, that doesn't make much sense. But we've already established that's not the goal. Um, so how does he teach us to pray? He teaches us to pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Again, that's the ultimate goal of God coming to dwell with his people on the earth once again. And so when we get a little further into Matthew, there's this interesting story in Matthew 19 where Peter has this weird question. You kind of expect Jesus just to brush him off, but he doesn't. So in, in Matthew 19, Peter uh, answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So when Peter asked that question, we kind of expect him to go, seriously, Peter, like, you get to be with me? Is there anything more you could want? You know, just, just go over there. You know, but he doesn't. Jesus says that he will honor the work that we do for his kingdom. He will honor the sacrifices we make. Um, and it's not just relationships will be restored in the end. He talks about physical things, houses and fields. It's this idea of reigning over a whole kingdom. The way it was supposed to be in Edom with Adam and Eve when God said, hey, the whole earth is yours, steward over it, do this, take care of it. That's coming back into play. It's not here yet, but that's what's coming, and that's what Jesus promises to those who follow him. And so Peter talked about this later in Acts. When he's preaching in, in Acts 3, and he's starting to establish what is, how is the church going to describe this huge thing that Jesus did, you know, he doesn't pull the, well, you're going to go to heaven when you die. That doesn't come out anywhere in the book of Acts. Um, but here's what he says when he's preaching. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised to go through his holy prophets. So again, he's pulling from this whole tradition that the Jews expected God to restore everything and set everything right in a new heavens and new earth. This is not a new idea to them. Um, they were much more familiar with it than we are, probably. Um, so what does it mean to restore everything? We get a little bit more specific when Peter later is writing his second epistle. Um, in chapter 3, he spells it out really specifically. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So Peter's the only one who talks about fire. Um, and it's not really death star vaporization, it all goes away and we start with something new. Um, it's fire is in the terms of purification. Paul uses this to talk about fire will judge the quality of our work. Um, Peter refers back to the flood cleansed the earth by water and then this, this will be cleansing by fire. We don't know what that looks like. Um, it's likely that the, the stars and the sun as we know it aren't going to be necessary because Revelation tells us that God himself is our source of light. So there's some things here that are fuzzy. We just don't know. But the, the overarching picture is not that it all burns up and we escape to the sky. It's that God himself comes and restores what is broken, purifies and perfects this earth, and again makes it what it was always intended to be. 
So we see this ultimately when John is, is prophesying what he sees at the very end of Revelation, the last two chapters. Um, and so this is kind of the key passage that you're probably familiar with um, in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. The world doesn't go away. It's not all new things are made. It's that all things are made new. They're restored to what they were originally intended to be. And so restoration is renewal. It's going back. It's making it as it should have been from the beginning. So N.T. Wright, when he's describing this, he says that the early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus at Easter. So the physical resurrection, the complete restoration of a man who was beaten to death and then scourged and hung on a tree can get up and he has a new body and he still has the scars. So there's carryover from one body to the next. We don't know how that works. doesn't matter. Um, but the, the, the complete transformation of Jesus' body is similar to the restoration this whole world will have and that we ourselves will have at the resurrection of the dead at the end of time. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about the resurrection. And he explains that because Jesus is the first fruits, he's the first one, he's the prototype, he shows us what it's going to be like for the rest of us. So we think about Jesus' resurrection. He was here for 40 days in between the resurrection and the ascension. Um, he spends a couple days hanging out with his friends, disappearing, you know, kind of freaking them out. Um, clearly humor and personality make it into the new creation. Um, you know, he can eat fish. He makes breakfast for his friends. He can go through walls. That's not because he's a ghost. That's not because he doesn't have a body. That's because his body is more real than this substance. It's more real than the bone and the stone and the, the wood that we have. He has access to more dimensions than we can comprehend right now. And it makes going through things like that just a piece of cake. How does that work? I don't know. Um, Wikipedia says something about, you know, string theory and multiple dimensions and things like that way above my head. We'll ask the uh, nuclear physicist when, when he gets ready. Um, but here's the thing. Restoration is resurrection. Um, that's the goal. That's our great hope is that death itself will die and we'll experience life more real than anything we can imagine right now. Um, so... What does that look like? Again, we don't exactly know, but, but think with me for a minute. Put on your holy imagination cap. Probably haven't done that in, in a while, but um, what would this new world be like? If there's no death, there's no pain, there's no broken bones, what could you do? What could a fearless five-year-old do in this new world um, full of life, you know? Could you climb Everest or swim as sharks or bike down the Grand Canyon, you know? There are all these things that are opened up to us in a brand new world um, that, yeah, it's, it's not maybe what we normally think about, but everything that God has created will be restored. I personally plan on flying with pterodactyls and racing T-Rexes because why not? Everything God has created will be restored. 
Um, and so we can joke about that, and I do think there is supposed to be, be hope and just recreation. There should be fun in the new world that God's promised. There's, there's rest and, and joy. Um, but it also goes deeper than that, because I think the restoration of all things also includes our hopes and dreams. Um, and I think for some of that, that there's labor that will continue in the new world. There's fields and houses to be built and developed. Um, I think, you know, when I was in high school and trying to figure out what we wanted to do, my friends and I would kind of sometimes play this game of, well, if you had ten lives, what order would you put the careers you want to do in order and, and that sort of thing. But I think there's going to be opportunities in the new heavens and the new earth to do some of those things, the dreams that God has put in our heart that maybe we don't get to pursue right now. I think there will be time to glorify him with all those gifts and talents we don't get to fully develop right now when we're with him for eternity. I think about uh, conversations I had with my grandmother towards the end of her life when I was applying for colleges, and she really wanted to be a teacher when she was young. Um, but it was the middle of the Great Depression, there was no money for college, so she became a secretary and was a really good secretary her whole life. But 60 years later, I could still hear the longing in her voice that she would have loved to teach. Um, and I think in the new creation, I'm going to get to take a lit class with Professor Mary Faye Palmer. I do. I think those things that God put in our hearts that we don't always get to see the fruition of now will come to pass. You know, I think that Phil and Pat are going to get to travel to the Alps and to the Amazon and wherever else they want to go. I really think I'm going to get to watch, you know, in the, the Saints versus Archangel basketball game, watch Brandon and Asher alley-oop over Gabriel and Michael. You know, there's going to be things we get to do that maybe we don't put in our normal little box of what heaven is that's so much bigger that God has for us. Um, so I don't know what the dreams in your heart are. Maybe you want to make things, but you're kind of stuck making spreadsheets. I think there will be things to make and songs to write and books to, to write and the new creation that maybe we don't get to do right now, but maybe God will restore our hearts in a different way beyond what we can immediately imagine and think about right now. So... That's all fun, and I think there is fun and hope in realizing that God can restore those things, even that we might not necessarily expect. Um, but the restoration is also about the nittier, grittier things of this world. It's about justice. It's about the deepest longings of our hearts are often not just, well, I'd really like to go on vacation to Hawaii, and maybe I'll get to do that someday in the new creation. That's true, but it's also... There are broken things in this world that no matter what legal systems we have, just can't be fixed. There are things that are so turned upside down that only God can set them right. And that's what the, the restoration of all things will ultimately be about. You know, scripture celebrates judgment. Not because it's an accounting of, well, you lied to your mother ten years ago and you cut that guy off in traffic. It's not so much an accounting of everything we've done, but as much as the whole world getting turned right of everything that's broken being restored, of all the sad things coming untrue. Um, and so it's about the, the things that we don't even begin to wrap our heads around, of human trafficking and, and slavery and things in this earth that we don't even have a clue how to, how to begin to fix. God knows that in his time all of that will come to an end and it will be restored in ways that we can't even imagine. And creation itself, the physical world, will be restored. Um, creation is groaning, it says, waiting in the pains of childbirth, waiting for us to get it right, for us to haste the day of restoration, for God to come and return. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 8. 
And so all these things that cause massive destruction and loss of life and hurricanes and, and tsunamis and, and all these things, that's not how the world was meant to be. The world doesn't want it to be that way, if we use Paul language. Um, but the broken systems of our world, you know, the caste systems, the human trafficking, whole nations just caught in endless cycles of poverty, all that will someday be made right because restoration is cosmic. It's about everything being put right. Restoration is the character of God. It's who he is. He longs to make it happen for the whole world, but he also wants us, each as individuals, to experience his restoration. He wants to heal our hearts and to bind up the broken places within us, to set us free, to trade our junk, the ashes of our life, for his beauty, for his new life. And, and that's what he longs to do for each of us. And so for each of us, restoration is personal. It's how God wants to change us and transform us right now, you know. And then as we experience that individually, we're able to extend that to others. And we're able to bring that restoration, God's restoration, to families and to communities and to neighborhoods and to nations. And, and we see that, to me, the, the best picture I see of restoration, what we've kind of already been talking about, is restoration is ESL volunteers faithfully working you know, they weren't trying to make a huge splash. They were trying to help the person in front of them learn English, learn a new culture, find Jesus. Um, I don't think any of them had any idea that, that 40 years later we'd have eight churches in Cambodia. You know, and restoration is God so transforming the hearts and the lives of some of those refugees that they're willing to go back to the land of death and torture and PTSD and share what God has done in their lives. That doesn't happen without God's restoration, you know, and, and now we're looking, I, I was there, to, you know, a week ago, um, and to look in the eyes of some of these kids that they've never known anything but the love of Jesus. They've always known that hope, just as I've always known that hope, and that's not reality for 98% of Cambodians, but by the grace of God, his restoration begins to change Okamon, and it changes Kumdom Ray, and it changes Kumdom or whatever it is, you know. <laughs> that God's restoration will spread and it will transform that nation in ways that we can't even begin to ask or imagine yet because that's how God works and it's not total and we'd like it to be complete and there's no magic button that removes all the landmines from Cambodia until Jesus returns and makes all the earth new but someday it'll be because God's restoration is now and it's not yet the kingdom of God is now it's here it's within us you know Jesus says the kingdom is near but at the same time, it's still far away. It's still not our total reality. We know it in bits and pieces, but it's not the full reality we know. And so we're still waiting for it, longing for it. But as we do, as God transforms us, we can be a part of transforming others. So what does that look like? What does it actually mean for you? Restoration starts by asking God to restore me. It says, God, here's my heart. It's broken and it's ugly, but you can heal it. You can make it whole. So give yourself and say, God, heal my heart. I don't care how long you've been walking with Jesus. This world is brutal. We get broken and battered and bruised. Our hearts get hurt. And we need Jesus to heal and restore us again and again. So wherever you are, maybe you're in a great place and you've experienced some of that healing recently. Awesome. Extend it to others. But for the rest of us, periodically it's, it's just wise to come to Jesus and say, hey, would you heal my heart? There are broken places in here. I don't even know how it happened, but there's pain here that only you can fix. 
So restoration starts by asking Jesus to heal us, to make us whole, to bind up the broken places in our hearts. And then when that's done, that's God's work. We can't make that happen. Restoration is God's work. But then he invites us to partner with him into his work. He invites us to join him and extend that same healing and freedom to others. When we've experienced healing and freedom and we walk in that healing and freedom, it gives other people permission to start looking for their own healing and freedom. And so that's what we get to do. We get to show this is what God has done in my life and this is what he can do in your life. We get to practically look for ways to bring justice. Um, We get to help right the wrongs in our society. Can we fix it all? No. Are we called to do something? Yes. Um, there's no end to the options here. You can help your neighbors learn English. You can support foster families who are fighting a broken system. You can fight to end this human trafficking. There's, there's a gazillion things you can do, and there's right in front of you. You don't have to go anywhere to find these options. And wherever there is not justice, that's where the church needs to be, filling in the gaps until justice can be restored. So here's the thing. Restoration is our work, too. We get to proclaim with our lives, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. We get to be the prototypes of the new creation and say, this is what restoration looks like when God changes my life. This is what your life can look like, too. We get to prophesy with every word and every step and every action that there's a better way, that the way of Jesus is a better way, and it will make all things new in the end. It will make all things right. With every breath, we breathe in the restored life of Jesus and we breathe out hope to a desperate, dying world. That is our work. Restoration is our work. So you've heard God's story. You've heard the fall, the the creation first, and then the fall, the redemption, the restoration. You've seen the big picture. You've probably experienced it at work in your life. You've seen how he creates goodness. He creates good things. He redeems the fallen parts of our life. And he restores. He makes us whole. He makes our hearts new. You've experienced that, probably. If you haven't, we'd love to introduce you to Jesus. We'd love for that to become your new reality, too. But we get a choice. We get to choose whether we're going to participate with what God's doing or push him aside. He gives us that option. And so we always present at each service the opportunity for you to, for you to respond to God. You know, if you haven't met Jesus, we, it would be our honor to introduce you to this hope and restoration that we're talking about. Maybe you know Jesus, but you'd like to partner with us and being agents of restoration, of standing with us as we bring restoration in Carrollton and Cambodia and everywhere in between. But maybe you're not there. Maybe you're part of this church. You've been a part of this church. Maybe you need to respond to God in a different way today. Maybe you need to ask God to heal your heart and make you new. Maybe you need to ask God to resurrect some of the dreams in your heart that have died. Maybe you need to scratch some items off your bucket list and put them on a new creation list for the future and invest those resources in bringing hope and restoration to people who won't have it unless we take it to them. So whatever it is, I invite you to respond to God. You can stand and sing. You can come to the altar and kneel. You can talk with the pastors. Um, But when God presents us with an opportunity and, and we don't respond, that's dangerous ground. So if God, there's restoration we all need either that we need to receive or we need to give. So in whatever that looks like for you, I invite you to respond as we stand and sing.